My guest today is a professor of psychology. His research focuses on intergroup relations, hierarchy, prejudice, mentorship, and racial identity. He's the first black professor in a department of cognitive, linguistics, and psychological sciences at Brown University. Please welcome Dr. Malik Boykin. Malik, how's it going? Hey, hey, Rodolfo, it's going good. How you doing, bro? I'm doing fine. I'm doing well, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast, Malik. Of course, of course. Good to be here. Good, good. So, hey, let's jump right into this. What do you do? I am a psychologist, a social psychologist, professor, and a lot of my job is research and teaching. And with research, there's also teaching and research. And so mentoring students, kind of teaching them how to do research. And in the process, we're doing collaborative work together. And then once we get knowledge back or data back from the experiments that we run in psychology, we'll take these results and write papers and publish papers. But I'm, I'm not like a clinical psychologist. I don't really do a much in terms of therapy and things of that nature. I study human social interactions, how people respond to social situations and, um, you know, collect data on that. Try to conduct science and communicate science about what we learn from studies of human social behavior. Got it. Okay. So what got you interested in psychology? Your father is a psychologist, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a unique space for me in the fact that for most of my childhood and really all the way to now, my father's been a a psychology professor at a historically black college. When I was born, he was a professor at Cornell University. By the time I was maybe three years old, we had moved to Howard. And I grew up in this unique situation where there was a growing psychology department of black professors. So it's like on days where I would just go to work with my dad, I'm in a psychology department with mostly black professors and black PhD students in a way that that was just- That was your world. It was my world. It wasn't like weird. It was just like, oh, this is what black people do when they get older, they become psychologists and PhD students, right? So in a world where I had dreamed some other dreams, had uh, pursued music for a while and done some other things. There was always this kind of natural attraction and this natural feeling like psychology would be a a normal next step. And then social psychology specifically because of a class that I took while I was at Howard Mm. from a professor named Jaya, who's left the academy and is now a poet. But yeah, that's what drew me to psychology. Nice. Okay. And then you also had a moment in your life, right? Where it was an incident with your car that kind of changed, uh, changed what you were doing and kind of pushed you towards that way towards psychology. Totally, totally. Yeah. So if you look at my resume from the time that I left college, the first time I left college, uh, was not a very good student, my first run at college. But if you look at the resume, that I turned into the eyeglasses shop that I I worked in as my first job after leaving college to pursue my rap dreams. 
on the future goals, I've written personality theorist. <laughs> this is what I would ultimately go back to if my rap dreams deflated. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a, a moment in, in 2007 where I smelled this electrical fire in my car, pulled over on I-95, trying to figure out what to, to make. Tried to restart the car, made a really crazy noise, looked under the hood, looked underneath the car. And from looking underneath the car, I saw that basically the whole car was on fire and grabbed a few things and started walking up the the road. And my whole car exploded like a a movie, you know what I mean? Like James Bond or something. And yeah, and that night into that morning, it was this moment of reckoning. I'm like thinking, I can't get to my gigs as an independent musician, you know, and a lot of what was this independent music career that I was going, literally was going up in smoke, right? So that, that year, I decided to just throw a lot of energy towards pivoting back towards psychology and, and that part of, of my pursuits. And, you know, this is 14, 14 years later. Oh, wow. And I'm... <laughs> Yeah, I'm a psychology professor at Brown University. That's it. Well, so not only could you, no, no telling what would have happened if you, you stayed there in a car. Oh, right? yeah. No, right. I'd, have, I'd have died. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, but you would have died. But not yeah. only that, but you it, it changed your life. And you're, you're a professor at Brown. You're the first Black professor in your department, right? Yeah. I was going to say CLPS department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, we, we, uh, some people here call it CLIPS, Cognitive Linguistic okay. Psychological Sciences. It's basically the psych department is 130 years old. Then there's a cognitive science department that has its own history, and linguistics department that has its own history. And there, there's some overlapping ideas there, and everybody wanted a new building. So the university said, merge departments and you'll get a new building. And so we are one, uh, one department uh, all together in the Metcalf Research Building <laughs> on, on good old Thayer Street in Providence. Yeah, man. So, yep. And um, across all three departments and this, this one combined, I'm, I'm the first black professor, tenure track professor. Yeah. So yep. 130 years. Wow. Uh, I'm the first one. And yeah. And what's even more special about that, I think, is that you mentioned that at first your grades were not good. Your grades mm-hmm. weren't good at all. But then there was a, a, a period in time where you went to another school and did some research on you. So I heard that you got 4.0s a few semesters in a row. And since then, things just started clicking. And But you still were rejected, right, from, from certain schools in your master's totally, and your PhD. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we could even take it a step back further. I repeated the 10th grade, right? So was in a university high school program when I first started high school. It was essentially moved from that and, you know, sent to my, my local high school at that point in time. Repeated 10th grade, did not have the best grades, but they were, they were okay, uh, decent enough, um, and uh, ha- had done okay on my standardized tests and was able to get into, you know, get, get into to Howard University with some help of, of my father being, being on faculty and performing well in a bridge program. And, um, you know, and in my time at Howard, you know, I was kind of probably still negotiating, to be honest, negotiating depression. I lost my mother when I was in middle school 
And, you know, I spent five years at Howard and accumulated about two years worth of credits and then left to pursue music. Right. Yeah. And learned a lot doing music, learned a lot about accountability, about making deadlines, about, you know, uh, uh, staying all, up all night to complete projects. And when the music thing ultimately went up in smoke and I went back to school, it was just like, man, school was easier than trying to make it in the music industry <laughs> and applying that same work ethic. Got my first 4.0 ever. Nice. And another one and another one. And that was kind of my gateway to Columbia University. And I got to Columbia for a master's degree and 4.0 that, right? Wow. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was, you know, I was just operating on a, on a, just a different level. Yeah. At that point. And it just kind of hasn't, hasn't really, haven't really walked back from that. And even with that, you you still had uh, some rejections from the school, but you weren't deterred and you, you had your goals out there. You knew what you wanted to do and you progressed. You, like you said, you went to Columbia, got your master's. And then after that, went and got your PhD. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. So, I, you know, I had applied to PhD programs uh, with my previous grades plus the 4.0s. And schools were like, ah, eh, we don't know which one of these people you are, you know, and done really well on the GRE, but it just was not, um, they just did not find it to be a compelling package. Right. And, uh, you know, got to Columbia, got some really good advice from some of the professors there about volunteer research experience and how to bolster my package and, and make myself more attractive for PhD programs than I'd been before, took on some leadership roles, was the president of the Psychology Honor Society, won an award in that capacity. Mm. And then my application to UC Berkeley, you know, rose to the top and uh, another, another Rodolfo, Rodolfo Mendoza Denton <laughs> decided to admit me to the, uh, to the PhD program great at UC Berkeley. Yeah, 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 definitely a great name. <laughs> now, the, the, the Rodolfos in my life have, have definitely been, been you know, uh, a, a good omen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now your your research, you focused on intergroup relations, prejudice, mentoring, racial identity, algorithm bias, things of that nature. Can you talk about some of these studies? Like I heard some of that you've talked about on algorithm bias and, and very fascinating and interesting stuff. Yeah, totally. So, you know, the research is to some people, it sounds like it doesn't all go together. But it, 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 for me, it really does. Taking it back to high school for me, there was a moment where my high school guidance counselor told me that I wasn't college material. Mm. Right? And my father's high school guidance counselor told him the same thing. Wow. Right. And so it's like, well, there's signal there, right? There's some kind of false negative rate there where people are like failing to see talent. Right. right. And, and that's not I'm like, you know, it's an assessment. And it's an assessment that's missing the mark, which is not unlike how standardized tests really miss the mark when it comes to assessing black and brown students in America. It's not unlike how people miss the mark when assessing talent that's housed in black bodies. And then when aggregates of data are taken and, and you apply a machine learning algorithm to learn from this data and come up with a decision rule, this computer system is also going to miss the mark and it's going to miss the marks in the same ways that the data and the people whose biases inform that data miss the mark 
it's just going to miss it even more efficiently because it's it's a machine learning decision algorithm. And so, you know, at multiple levels, this is what I'm thinking about. And it's kind of like, how do we not miss the mark? How do we support students that have talent, but some assessments are saying that they can't or shouldn't or, or will not succeed? So some of it is about mentoring and support networks to develop talent. Some of it is about preparation for standardized tests because some people have access to understanding how to prepare right. and some people don't. I got bad advice. I got good advice. I could have stopped it bad, but I went beyond my network to find really good advice and that it really helped me. And then when it comes to algorithms, a lot of people don't necessarily realize that they're doing the kinds of harm in society that they're doing. And because it's like mathematical, people assume that it's fair or beyond repair or intervention. And it really is just not the case. You can write scripts to correct algorithms if you decide to do that. <laughs> All right. right. And, you know, so we're, we're trying to also understand the conditions under which people are willing to correct algorithms and then which form of correcting an algorithm is preferred in which situations and who prefers them. And so that's a lot of, of the research work that I'm doing, places that I'm, I'm uh, uh, putting a lot of mental energy and sweat equity and I'm organizing an exceptionally talented team of undergrads and research assistants. And one um, master's student who is in Germany but who volunteers in my lab on a regular basis just because she likes the work that we're doing and thinks nice. that we're doing good work for, for society. And it's a great way to spend my days yeah. trying to solve problems with smart, motivated people who are good people and who are willing to try to do good. Now, have you done any studies on facial recognition used by police? Not yet. Okay. It's funny you say that because... A meeting that I had yesterday was in the service of developing a study that is about people's trust of, of data. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we, we talked about facial recognition, yeah. <laughs> yeah. facial recognition data. And um, yeah, so when I say not yet, maybe in the very near future, nice. okay. we're, we're in the process of, yeah, we're in the process of, of working on it's with a, some of my collaborators over at USC, one of my former honors thesis co-advisees, Maya Kratzley, who's now a PhD student at USC and is doing brilliant work on surveillance and trust over at USC. So yeah, now I'm still still working with her and face recognition is very much in the mix. It's in place. Nice. Definitely, <laughs> definitely yeah. likes to talk to you after that. That would be yeah. very interesting. Oh, so, no doubt, man. Yeah. So it had to be... Very interesting for you, studying the minds of people and especially dealing with racial bias and prejudice and intergroup relations, things of that nature during a pandemic and during a lot that happened during a pandemic as well. So how has that really affected your work? That's a deep question. I feel like some level, a lot of the things that have happened in terms of race and violence, police violence and other kinds of racialized violence, even, you know, just by civilians against white civilians, against communities of color, is not unlike the history of the country, right? Like this has kind of just been going on. And I think that two big differences are that 
people have cell phone cameras now. So literally everybody is a camera crew. Everyone is a camera crew, right? Mm-hmm. And, and with surveillance and things of that nature, then we just have so much more access to, to see these images. And the other thing is that because of the pandemic, people were home yeah. and consuming media and, and didn't really have much to do other than get on social media and or try to keep themselves occupied. And when people stopped to uh, buzzing about as they usually do, I think it really just hit people like, oh, snap. This thing that's been going on, on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, is, you know, people paid attention to it. Then you had protest movements around the murder of of George Floyd, uh, among others, that kind of became a part of this broader moment. And people had been inside. And it was an opportunity to get out of the house, right? And so you had this social contagion where, where folks were getting out to protest these things that they were paying attention to, right? And I think that was powerful. It, it went viral and went way beyond the borders of our, our nation. And I think that it just got a lot more people into the conversation. And that part of it is a good thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just black people. You're right. It was everyone. Man, I was I went up, you know, I live in Rhode Island and I went up to Portland, Maine to go to one of my favorite restaurants, the High Roller. They got great lobster rolls up there. Nice. <laughs> I drove into Portland, Maine and stumbled upon a Black Lives Matter rally. Huh? Like, <laughs> it's just, uh, just of all the things that I thought that I would maybe see in Maine, a Black Lives Matter rally was just not on the list. Right. <laughs> but, you know, there it was. And it was mostly white people and a few Black people but with signs and bullhorns and people prepared to provide CPR and medical services and things, you know, there were, there were folks that were there that were just, it was an organized rally to advocate for the black lives everywhere, partly because, you know, there's what, like, like 1% black people in the state of Maine. Yeah. (laughs) Who's lives matter? Who up here? Who, where, where? like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but it, but it was fascinating. And I, I literally just stood to observe it. Yeah, I, I didn't participate, but it was just like, just as a social psychologist, yep. just to witness that was like, man, this is something different happening in the world right now. And I, I'm, let me just soak this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned mentors a few times, and then you also mentioned a few of them, I believe were mentors, someone named J.I., something like that, Rodolfo. Yeah, Jaya, Jaya John. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And your yep, father. Yep. So so I'm guessing mentors have been very instrumental to you and, and very just instrumental in your life and your in, in a lot of decisions you made and the steps that you've taken over your life. Yeah, I feel like one of your best sources of information for anything that it is that trying to do is the advice of somebody who's actually done it yeah and for the many daredevil things i've tried it takes some audacity to to go from you know college dropout essentially to to professor right and every step of the way it was just kind of like man like like that what's this next step who knows how to do this step right 
can I get some of your time? Would you meet with me? And, you know, so I had mentors for my GREs. I had mentors for graduate school applications, both rounds. And with the second round, my dear friend, Nicole Holiday, who's now a professor at UPenn, she helped me out a lot in that regard. And uh, uh, my buddy, Demarcus Peggies, who was a PhD student at, at Columbia at the time, you know, met with me and and uh, drilled me on some questions to get me prepared for graduate school interviews, right? So it's literally every, like you break the steps down and then you seek people to support you on these particular steps. So mentorship is just, it's been paramount. I mean, I've, you know, in in this moment at Brown, uh, people like Bertram Male, who was my postdoc mentor and, and has transitioned into being my faculty mentor, here and the associate provost Chris Rose here has been uh, instrumental for me to just helping me to navigate the Ivy League Academy as a scholar that's enveloped in a black body right you know and so for every different kind of thing I'm trying to do mentors have just been crucial yeah yeah no definitely same here now Let's talk about a a typical day for you. So a social psychology professor at Brown University, what's a typical day like for you? Well, you know, this is my first year on faculty here, right? And this whole year has been during the pandemic. Yeah. So what's trippy is that I run about a a 15-person team, and I'd say more than half of the people on my team are people that I've not met in person. Mm. There's students who have joined my lab either by referral or just by application. And we meet on a regular basis and I have different teams that meet about different things. And it's a lot of Zoom, right? It's a lot of Zoom. So on Mondays, I have my lab meeting. I get the whole squad together. We check in about different projects and figuring out who needs my time throughout the week. And who needs each other's time? Because I, I definitely try to model peer support. People are editing each other's documents. People are, are really helping each other out. Then I have a, a subsequent lab meeting because I'm still a member of Virtual Colleagues Lab. And then I meet with one of my lab managers to go over money stuff. You know, Tuesdays, um, this past semester, I taught on Tuesdays. Uh, I also, if from 10 a.m. to noon, I have a writing session and my, my lab mates and I have been using that session time to build tutorials for some apps that we're developing. Those apps we develop in a cross-disciplinary team meeting on Thursdays where we have coders, a computer science collaborator that I work with named Sarah Brown, a couple of consultants that are folded in my lab and um, undergraduate coders and undergraduate psych students we're doing basically user experience research, looking at the apps um, that we're going to we were developing for research, saying what buttons they need, uh, what makes sense to them, what's intuitive design, and what changes need to be made. And so my week really is is a series of it's like a gauntlet of scheduled Zoom meetings that that uh, take on different flavors. There's grant writing meetings. There's uh, office hours where my undergraduate students for my course that I teach, the psychology of stigma and prejudice, will just pop in and try to unpack the papers, talk to me about their career aspirations and things like that. And then collaborative team meetings with people at other universities are kind of 
packed into there as well. I got a, a collaborator at Barry University down in Georgia and this group over at USC, a couple of folks at Yale that I'm working with. And so that's what a lot of my day looks like. Mm, okay. Keeping tabs on projects, making sure things that are progressing, making sure that studies are getting designed, studies are getting piloted, data is getting analyzed, honors theses are getting drafts of edits. And I have a postdoc that works with me. We went through a, a round of preparing her for a job interview this semester. So a lot of, lot of mentoring, a lot of teaching, a lot of research, that's, and a lot of writing. All so right. My, my days look like. So, okay, so with that, a lot of the teaching, tutoring, researching, writing, the team meetings, the grant writing, all that. So with all that you do, what skills and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful in your line of business? Yeah, I think that being personable, I think listening is very important as well. I think patience and humility are very important. Research is humbling. It's like often sometimes you, you build this study and you think you're going to find the things, but you build the cake and it falls and you, 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 the data comes back and it humbles you. And you have to try, try again and convince other people to keep trying as well. And so like you, you not only have to have that perseverance and resolve, but you also have to be able to coach people to hang in there and persevere, and create another iteration of the study or keep coming back for eight rounds of edits on their document because it isn't, isn't quite right. And being able to deliver feedback in a way that is supportive, yeah. compassionate, and that is also demonstrating you know, high expectations that you have for people. And also just being able to be wise about the personnel that you select. Yeah, I've really been either very fortunate or very skillful in the, the ways that I, I've put this team together. I just couldn't be happier with my squad. You know, we are getting this work and it's easy to have high expectations of them because they're so damn good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things that I love about what I do. One of them is on the translational side, like when I'm actually going out and giving talks and and telling people about what we've done, you know, and bringing new information to people that want it, that that can do something with it for, for whom they find it meaningful, right? And that happens in a, in a number of ways. I mean, sometimes it's given talks at the professional conferences to other psychologists for whom this, this information is very timely for the things they're, think, they're thinking about. And other, thing, other times it's forums like these where I'm talking to people who are not Brown University students or are not social psychologists or IO psychologists at the conference, but who might want to learn about the kinds of things that I do, right? And in many of the, these times where I've done podcasts or, you know, I did a forum earlier today uh, on race and anti-Black racism at Brown University, it's the emails that you get afterwards where people just, just let you know that you really put something in perspective for them or uh, that, you know, you said something that, that gave them hope or, or that let them know what their next step should be. And that is just rewarding. It, it is just really a confirmation that the hope that I have 
to do good in this world with the work that I do it is actually being received. That's you transmit it, but you get this this confirmation of reception. Right. And that really is what I love about what I do. Yeah, no, definitely. Getting that makes it seem that all that what you're doing is making a difference. Yeah. It's adding value. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I also make hip hop music. Yeah. <laughs> so dancing for freedom. Yeah, man. I like that song, man. I like that song. And that, that song, that song gets you dancing. That song hey, is nice. Hey. <laughs> And I appreciate that a lot. And yeah. I, you know, I've been watching people post videos to the song Dancing for Freedom on TikTok and other platforms. Uh-huh. And, you know, one of them, there was a girl that did a Black Lives Matter interpretive dance to it. It, it was just like she got what I was transmitting, you know, and I left a message on her page and you know, she replied, like, I love this song so much, and I, I'm going to cry that you saw my video. Um, you know? But for me, it was this confirmation that what I transmitted was received. Right. You know, and so uh, I just I just couldn't be more appreciative. And I think that, that I just get a similar feeling of fulfillment from people getting the message and uh, getting moving and dancing, man. You know, uh, dancing is joy. It's freedom. It's, it's expression. It's love. Yep. Yeah. Well, it definitely got me dancing. Well, who hey, who, <laughs> who made the beat? Stefan Alexander is a physics professor really? at Brown University. Yeah, he's a professor of theoretical physics, brother from the Bronx, who you know, generally works on, uh, and he's like studying black holes and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. He wrote a book called The Jazz of Physics. He plays, a, he plays saxophone in, in a couple of bands. And when he's so when he's not trying to study star gravity, he is uh, making beats. And he and I have a six-song EP that we're in the process of mixing and mastering right now. Dancing for Freedom was kind of the the teaser track. Nice. We got some more heat in the in the chamber, you know. So it's it's we're gonna be we're gonna be unleashing it real soon, real soon. Well, hey, man, that was a good teaser, a really good teaser. So got a good dynamic duo right there. I like it. Thank you, man. All right. No, I'm being for real, too. I really like that song. Yeah. Now, you mentioned what you love about what you do. Now, on the flip side, what type of challenges are there for you? There's plenty. Racism is everywhere. And when you're studying things that some people might find threatening or people don't want to cede the value of what it is you're saying or see that there's some alternative reality out there, when you're just trying to exist as a human being that people see as black, right? That there's just a different emotional toll. There's different opportunities. There's discrimination that's very real. There's many people who are motivated to minimize that or delegitimize that. Mm. And some of those people are psychologists. And some of those people review your papers when you submit them to journals and say really stupid things Mm. about the science because they're threatened by it and because they just don't want it to exist. And so they make it harder than it would be if you were saying things that were more congruent with the worldview that they were comfortable with. So that's one thing that is, is a bit frustrating about this gig. And among others, you know, there, there are people who are at many steps of the way 
we'll try to have it both ways, right? Like some folks will say that some of my opportunities were gotten only because I was black. But then at the same time, it's like, well, how can that be true if I'm the only one here? If they was just giving these jobs out to black people, then how come didn't nobody get one for 130 years? And at the same time, there's almost this, you know, not as dramatic as what Jackie Robinson had to go through. You know, nobody's throwing bananas at me or no. And I don't know if I could curse on this podcast. It's fine. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) But, but you know, but, but there are, uh, there are the comments, there are the, uh, uh, the ways that, that how people react to you complicate just the course of the day. And so I think managing that is something that takes mental energy. Yeah. Uh, submitting studies to the Institutional Review Board and, you know, they're, they're fighting you over the fact that they're uncomfortable with the questions that you're asking because the questions are about race and they're assuming discrimination or an alternate reality or assuming that racism exists in or you know, other kinds of ideas that they maybe haven't quite wrestled with in the same way. And so you're constantly having to like advocate for the legitimacy of the work. And and on one hand, I mean, that is the work. Advocating for the legitimacy of the work is the work, right? But the number of people who are willing as (laughs) non-experts offer their dissenting opinions to serve as part of the gauntlet that you have to navigate it definitely makes maybe for then it would be otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Now, what do you do for stress relief or do, do you have hobbies outside of music? Do you have other hobbies? Yeah, I have a few. I, I mean, you know, to be perfectly honest, the dancing for freedom record is I dance, man. Like I like to dance, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I, I go there, there's hip hop clubs that I go to all through graduate school for masters and, and all the way through it. It's like, I know where them DJs are at. Nice. I'm going to go in and, you know, dance it out. So that's part of it. And I'm also really into, I'm really into animals, like, like mm-hmm. marine animals. I go, I've gone, I've traveled to go see whales. Nice. I've traveled to go see moose, elk and other animals in the wild, many other kinds of, of animals. So animal tourism, so this is like a big, just, just thing I'm into, kind of random, but, uh, you know, I love it. Nice. And do yeah. you do, do you practice capoeira? I do not. Okay. I saw yeah, that in the song. I wasn't sure if that was something that you're doing. Nah, I was really just thinking about protest movement. Yeah, and the yeah. You know, yeah. And, that, and that in Angola and in Brazil, these were styles of fighting that were leveraged by oppressed peoples against colonizers. Right. And in an almost literal sense, capoeira is dancing for freedom. Yeah. It really just is. Yeah. And so I just wanted to incorporate those concepts in the song and to also make sure that the song had a transnational, across the globe, black diaspora kind of message to it that that people could see themselves in. Love it. Yeah. 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 
Now, do you have any most memorable moments in your career that stick out to you? Man, the most memorable moment, like just the thing that flashes before my eyes, before anything, is the fact that the whole time I was doing my PhD, one of the things, one of the images that kept me going was the hope that I would get hooded on the stage at graduation by my father. Mm. And that happened. Wow. Father flew out to California, put on his PhD robes, came out on stage, and he and my PhD advisor took both parts, took either side of that cape and hooded me. And I hugged my father on stage. It was just an emotional moment, one of a kind, and just something that for a person who this potential the potential for this moment was not, it was not a given. Right. It was a really, it was a roller coaster ride. And I think that it was just kind of like, we made it. You got me here. Thank you so much, you know, for, for all of the, the support at different stages mm-hmm. and for being here for this particular moment and for welcoming me from one side of becoming to the other side of being mm-hmm. as a PhD, man. I, I just, as it, it's going to be hard to top that one. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe yeah. one, of these, one of these days I'll become a father and maybe that'll top that one. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 it's going to be tough. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so many of us really want to make our father proud of us. And for you to, be on that stage at UC Berkeley, have your father, who is also a psychologist, hood you, getting that PhD, that, that's, that's amazing. I, I can see that and see that happening and kind of live it. And that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, way, way boy can contribute. Don't be throwing the words, I'm proud of you around all willy-nilly. <laughs> that ain't what you be doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that was that was a day, a prominent day that I remember that he flat out told me that he was proud of me. Oh, man. And man, you know, it was just uh, uh, so moving and just, yeah, I don't know, man. I just I, I needed to hear it. Yeah. I needed I needed for that moment to happen. Yeah. And I needed to hear those words uh, yeah. more than I had even realized prior to it. And it just put put some in my step that ain't never left. You yeah. Know? Yeah, that's great, man. That's really good. Really good memory. So uh, do you have any advice for people getting into your field? Yes, I do. One really big piece of advice that I that I got, actually, Mm. and have continued to use is email folks. You Mm. know what I mean? Uh, These people that are in social psychology we're publishing papers. We're hoping that people somewhere out in the world give a about what we're doing, you know? And there are volunteer opportunities that are available to get involved and to be mentored by these people that are inspiring you or, and, and that you're learning from and that you are hoping to work with, you know? And that advice was given to me. I went to a session at Columbia where people were presenting research and I asked, I asked, like, hey, can I join your lab? Do you need a research assistant? Can I get involved? And I was involved a week later. Mm. 
Wow. And that involvement ended up being the opportunity for me to do the kinds of research that helped to make me attractive for the PhD programs. I just didn't have that kind of research experience. It really changed my fortunes. And so in the vein of you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take, you right. know, if you want to get involved in something, you want to learn more about something, ask those questions, reach out to people, send some emails, let people know that you're willing to add some value in exchange for some knowledge. And I did that. I know that it feels exceptionally privileged to, to be able to say I had the time to volunteer. But I was working a couple of jobs at that time too. I was bartending and had a whole nother work-study job on campus and squeezed in some time to do volunteer research on top of that. And so it's just like, man, if, if you got time to binge watch whatever or you know, play Fortnite, whatever the hell, you, you can find some time to put in 10 hours or 15 hours or whatever into a research lab to really gain some experience that could be uh, just invaluable for this particular pursuit. The other thing is read. It is really just undervalued, you know, read first, like primary sources, not just the books that summarize the research, but actual empirical papers that are kind of the backbone of the field read those. And even if you don't understand all of the statistics and things of that nature, that's fine. You get involved in research. You could talk to people. They'll, they'll, they'll explain stuff to you. At the point in time, you need to know that stuff. You'll figure it out, but jump in it, get involved. Nice. So I guess things aren't going to fall in your lap. Got to be proactive, go out there, email, call, whatever you can to people. The best source for what you're trying to do are the people doing it. So reach out to them mm-hmm. and try and gain experience however you can. Volunteer, gain that experience and read your research papers. All right. Yeah, yeah. Almost everybody in my lab is somebody that reached out to me mm. and said, hey, I want to get involved. And they're involved. And we meet on a regular basis and I pour into them. And that's, it really started with emails. Okay. Be a person that sends those emails, you know? Wow. Okay. So every single person in your lab, they they reached out to you? Just about. Uh, Yeah. There's a couple of people who we got the uh, uh, applications for very specific skills. Right. But most people, it was just like, hey, you know, Dr. Boykin, uh, like the kind of things you're doing and I'm hearing it. People are having a good experience in your lab. I want to get involved. Cool, let's have a meeting. Top it up. I send them some papers. If they read them and we talk about them, they sound like they know what they're talking about. Then, uh, you know, then I invite them to meetings and we get started. Love it. Nice. All right. Well, hey, Malik. We're at the end of this interview. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. This was a good conversation. Thank you, man. Yeah, no problem. I want to head over to this quick hitter session. I'm going to ask you questions for fun, just for people to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> but before we do that, though, is there anything additional that you would like to talk about or anything you might have felt like I left off asking you? Not necessarily not. I think we Gucci. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah, but definitely, yeah. you know, MalikStarks.com, M-A-L-I-K-S-T-A-R-X.com is a good place to find music, uh, streaming on Spotify and all these other places. 
and Boykin Lab, B-O-Y-K-I-N lab.com is a good place to find my research. So. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's go to these quick hitter questions. Yeah. So first one, what's your favorite sports team? Woo. Man, it's the Washington Wizards. Okay. All right. Yeah. They got two nice stars. Man, you know, we're having we're having a, yet another tough season. Yeah. But I grew up in D.C., man, and I, I love the Wiz. So. Yeah. yeah. Fun to watch, though. Beal and Westbrook. Yeah. All right. Favorite movie or show? Oof. Uh, my favorite show is Jesus and Marrow. Oh, yeah. 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 Yep. Uh-huh. Are, are you from the Bronx also? Nah, I grew up in Hyattsville, Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Born in Ithaca, New York. Oh, okay. But but yeah, I've been in Hyattsville, you know, most of my most of my life. Got you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Oof. Uh, Nas is my favorite rapper, and John Coltrane is my favorite musical artist overall. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. Favorite vacation spot? Favorite vacation spot: New York City. All right. Yeah. And not too many animals out there for your animal watching hour. <laughs> Man, you know, them, them raccoons be popping out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I just seen them everywhere. Brooklyn, Harlem. Yeah, no, nah, the New York City. Good point. Be, be, be on the lookout. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> uh, favorite food or drink? Uh, I am a tequila drinker. And my favorite food is a Maryland crab cake. Jumbo. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned one thing you love is that people, when they email you afterwards. So is there a way that people can contact you uh, if they have comments, questions, anything? Yeah, absolutely. So if it's about research, then C underscore Boykin at brown.edu. It's an easy place to find me. Uh, Instagram, I'm at Starks Malik, S-T-A-R-X-M-A-L-I-K. Uh, I'm C Malik Boykin on LinkedIn, uh, you know, and I will I will reply to you. Uh, we, we, can, we can talk about things. So those are, are some good places to find me. Great. Well, hey, Malik, this has been great. Learned yeah. a lot. It's it great talking to you, having this conversation. And you. just congrats, man, on all that you've done and all your accomplishments, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, Rodolfo. This has been a a great conversation. It's an awesome platform and keep doing what you're doing, man. Hey, thank you. Thanks. That means a lot, man. Well, thanks. And and thank you for coming on and uh, have a good one. I appreciate it. Yep. Take care, brother. All right. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.